Exposure. For those of you just tuning in, uh, we are joined in studio by Lindsay and Josh of Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies. And that was the song under right now. The leaves are changing, correct? <laughs> um, so well, I think one of the most beautiful parts of your music, are, from what I've heard off of your CD and what you just played, is the attention you paid to lyrics. So how do you guys come up with with these ideas? Where, where does it come from? Well, it's funny. Um... <laughs> Because just now when I performed that, uh, that was quite different. The, <laughs> the lyrics are quite different than they were, um, than they have been before. And that happens to a lot of my songs when I'm playing them. You know, it's funny. I write a song. They're my lyrics. And I've sung them a million times. And every once in a while, I'll get to a part and, and I'll think to myself, wait a minute. This is not how it goes. But you just kind of go with it and, and see, what, <laughs> see what comes out. But um, when I write lyrics... Uh, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I I just wrote a song uh, driving when we were we were touring out in Colorado, and I had to wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go drop <laughs> off these these two banjo players, of course, at the Denver airport. And on the way back, um, I started to. It was night. It was still dark when I was driving out, but when I was driving back. All the mountains lit up, and I saw what I couldn't see before. And and on the radio, there was uh, we were, I was listening to the Bluegrass Junction on on Sirius Radio, and there's a bluegrass song about being tied down. And I thought I really like that that phrase. Josh and I just got married a, a few weeks ago, and and I like it. Congratulations. <laughs> I like it, but it, but I like it in a different way than what the song was talking about. So I thought I started thinking about what my version of being tied down would be like, and it is is quite different. Um, but I just think about I I, th- I had some parts in there that um, were inspired from some of the readings that were at our wedding and parts of our vows and you know things. If something strikes me and I and I feel moved by, a lot of times I'll. <laughs> I like I'm either laughing or crying when I'm writing a lot of my songs, um, and if it makes me laugh or it makes me cry while I'm writing it, then I usually go with it. <laughs> so you guys have another tune to play for us. What are what are we gonna hear? Well, this this is a song that I wrote after taking a few trips with Joshua down to the capital. We live pretty close to the capital in Lansing, and um, when all those protests were going on, it was really inspiring to me. Um, to see all of these people out with their voices doing what what we as citizens have a right to do and and standing up for the things that are important to us um, so i I came home and sat out on my porch and put this one together. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we've been calling it the protest song, but <laughs> I think I'm going to call it the power. All of these songs, it's they're very ambiguously named, as you can tell. <laughs> I basically name, have to write it. The names are harder it. than the lyrics. Yeah, the names are harder than the lyrics. <laughs> I have to, once I write it on the album and it's there, then I guess that'll be the name. <laughs>
You're listening to Impact Exposure. That was Lindsay and Josh Rilko of Lindsay Lou and the Flat Bellies. Um, so where can people find you this summer before I let you guys go? Um, well, we'll be at the Lansing... Lake Lansing. Lake Lansing... Banshell. Banshell. Lake Lansing Banshell and Hazlitt. I'm calling it the bombshell. I can't be right. Lake Lansing Banshell and Hazlitt from 7 to 9-ish? Yep, I think so. That's this Friday. That's this Friday. And Saturday, we're going to be... The Wolverine Brewing Company in Ann Arbor. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody always asks me when our shows are, and I was like, oh, it's on the website. um, I, I have, I'm a bit of a scattered brain. I have tra- hard, hard time keeping track of these things. But then, so we got Friday at the Lake Lansing Band Shelf, Saturday at the Wolverine Brewing Company in Ann Arbor, and Sunday we'll be at the Hoxieville Music Festival on the Mitten stage. Busy weekend for you guys. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to stop by. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. Yeah, no problem. That was Lindsay Liu and Josh Wilco of Lindsay Liu and the Flat Bellies. They will be performing, like they said, at the Lake Lansing Be- Band Show uh, Friday, August 19th at 7 p.m. And to take us out, we have a track off of their CD uh, called Mercy. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. This Thursday, the Renegade Theater Festival will return You're to listening Old Town to Impact. The festival presents about two dozen productions by independent and local theater companies. Today, we welcome Melissa Kaplan and Katie Doyle, who are co-coordinators of the Renegade Theater Festival. Welcome to Exposure. Thank Hi. you. Thanks for having us. All right. So how did this festival come about, or this event come about? Well, it actually started in East Lansing in 2008 uh, by the uh, two fellows who run the Peppermint Creek Theater Company, Chad Badgero and uh, then artistic director Louis Balestra, who's since moved on to New York. But they started the festival in East Lansing. They looked around, and as Chad said, saw all kinds of festivals, but nothing for theater. And there's a lot of theater in this town. Why not do something that will feature uh, what, what we have to offer? So they started it in a couple of venues, the Marriott Hotel and Scene Metro Space, with a few theaters, including Peppermint Creek. I don't recall everybody who participated. It may have been the Lansing Civic Players. I think it was the Civic Players. Maybe Ruhala Performing Ruhalla Arts Performing Center. Arts. Mm-hmm. There might have been one other group, and they, they did what we're doing now, which is offer a number of shows over the course of several evenings in a couple of different venues and invite the community to come and, and see what's going on. Then I believe... There was a year where spaces weren't available and Peppermint Creek moved to perform in Old Town at Perspective 2. And LCC, uh, where I work, had done theater in the park, in the parking lot, actually, for several years. At at Old Town, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. in Old Town, which is absolutely a blast to put a big stage up and and sets and and spend several weeks there. It was was a really cool experience. Challenging, but fun. (laughs) And then our campus space became available again, but it still seemed like a really cool thing. And I we were talking about their festival, the Renegade Festival, and how Old Town might be a really good place for it and put our heads together. And Old Town is a fabulous place for a festival. Yeah. And, and so that summer, it began in Old Town. Actually, I think it might have been 2006 that it started in East Lansing. Mm-hmm. In 2008, that Eight. it, mm-hmm. it moved to Old Town. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the first summer that it, it quickly came together and in a most welcoming way, and and we've been in Old Town since then every summer in August. So how is this event this year? Is it going to differ from uh, years past in any ways? Is there going to be anything new? Well, we have some uh, folks that return each season, like Ruhala, as Melissa had mentioned. Uh, Sandra Seaton is an independent artist. Uh, Fred Engelgau is an independent artist. Uh, Peppermint Creek, of course, will be there again. Um, but there are often new uh, theaters or independent artists that come in. Um, and it's just a wonderful showing in the evening. Um, for people that might not be aware, too, if they've come to Renegade uh, to visit us on the Thursday and Friday and Saturday evening, um, there is also a Renegade Kids uh, on Saturday, and that has family theater. Um, so people who have visited us in the past will remember this, and uh, that's a lot of fun, too. We have three family theaters that will be performing on the Renegade Kids afternoon. So, yeah, there's there's something for there's something truly for everyone including people who've never been to theater before and one of the things that I loved I think it was feedback we got that first summer we were in Old Town. There were people who said they had never been to a play before. They'd heard about this. They came, and they they had a great time. They went to several different productions, which is one of the cool things. You can come down in an evening starting at 6, hear some music at the Turner Mini Park, then pick a show to go to at 7, come back out, hear some more music, a different group playing at 8, and then go to another show at 9. And you have all this wonderful entertainment and whether you're a theater junkie, like mm-hmm. there are plenty because there's a lot of theater in this <laughs> yeah. room, or you're you're somebody who's brand new to it. There's 24 different different productions, so there's there is something for everyone. Family, there's uh, material that's definitely for 18 and over adult adult material. Uh, there's comedy, drama, experimental, 
Katie's doing a piece, and I don't <laughs> quite know how you would classify it. It's it sounds like a drama to me. But it's a it's it. a it's a short work um, about a husband and wife. The husband is a stepdad, and he has uh, in his mind that on this particular evening. He's planned for he and his wife to go to a midnight dance because this is the evening that you turn your clocks ahead. And his wife has other plans in mind. She's waiting for her son to come home. And uh, it's kind of about what um, change brings, often some challenge with it. I think it's a gentle, sweet piece. Um, And it's a short. It's one of the shorter pieces at the festival. Um, we have longer pieces as well. Some of them are one acts. They'll be about half hour to 45 minutes, uh, all the way up to full length plays. And this year we also welcome back uh, the second year for this component of the festival, which is the Renegade Now, which stands for New Original Works. Uh, Paige Tufford joined the planning and coordinating team last year and had an idea that she would like to uh, somehow format something for playwrights and for new plays so that playwrights can see their work and this might be offered uh, to the theater community. Perhaps they would pick up something uh, that they might be able, a theater or an independent group might be able to do in the future. So we also have the Now, which we're welcoming back this year as new plays. It features a lot of Michigan playwrights, um, but also some playwrights from out of the city. And I should mention, too, we're very happy that Michigan State University, again this year, is um, doing something for the festival. And also there's an independent artist named Dennis Corsi who's created his own theater group. He is a student at MSU um, in the program, theater program. And he'll also be doing a work at the festival. Um, LCC... Riverwalk. I mean, it's a nice Williamston Theater professionally. Yeah, two professional groups: the Williamston and then we the also newest, welcome the American mm-hmm. Shakespeare Collective, which uh, started by a number of people, including Tommy Gomez, who uh, teaches and directs here at MSU, mm-hmm. and the fabulous John Neville Andrews. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's that's really exciting. Williamston and the American Shakespeare Collective will each be doing two performances Friday, Saturday night. All the so many community theaters, almost every community theater in town, they're all invited. Several, for different reasons, couldn't participate, but but almost every other group is participating. The children's theaters, all of us express children's theater, Mid Michigan Family Theater, Phoenix Players. I think it's I forget the full name, but again, that's led by an MSU faculty member, Ansi Levy. Uh, Kelly Stonebrook is an independent. Paul mm-hmm. Horn is an independent. Katie, so, Sandra mean, Seaton, the puppet theater. <laughs> yes, it's so cool. It's really is there fun. is there any one performance in particular that you're like, I just, I have to see? I have been asked <laughs> this, and I've asked this about our own season at LCC, and mm-hmm. it's so hard because I want to see everything. everything. I want to see it. And as coordinators, it's, it's very hard. It's I very think hard. we pop in and out of a whole lot of things. A lot of theaters like to bring something that, that, that maybe they're thinking about putting in their season, and it gets them some feedback. They have a chance mm-hmm. to uh, uh, get audience response and, and work out some bugs before they, they invest in, in putting on a full production. Uh, as Melissa was saying, and if I could go a little further, is that it allows the theaters in town to do something, if they so choose, that might not they might not be known for or it might not be something that they would choose for their normal season so in a real sense the renegade sort of equals experimental yeah, it gives them in a, a real positive to... way right and i want to see everything just like melissa does but what i also like uh i know chad it's a little bit of a tangent but i know chad was very grateful the first year when East Lansing sponsored it. And since moving into Old Town, what I like to see is the energy sort of in the Old Town, downtown area. Uh, people coming to Old Town were very grateful to the businesses for and the galleries for opening up their spaces to us. But it's just kind of a really cool vibe to see people coming down. You know, we've had picnickers before by the, um, by the riverfront, the 
the uh, restaurants generally stay open a little bit later. Some of the stores stay open later. And so for people to just sort of be down downtown, old town area as a as a collective and just sort of have a good time together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's a really neat thing to see. People just kind of mingle on the street, like Katie was saying, and and you just you never know what's what's going to happen. And I do want a second the appreciation to the businesses. We are uh, so fortunate that places like Creole Gallery and Absolute Gallery and Message Perspective makers. Too, mm-hmm. they are opening their doors. Message Makers has two spaces, a warehouse and and a space that's actually for lease. It used to be a, a bar. We call it the Mustang because that's what it was called. That's a wonderful space. The Chrome Cat was uh, a bar, and it's it's for lease right now, but we're able to be in there. And the mm-hmm. Micah Gallery, all those spaces are... Did you say are, Perspective 2? Yep, Perspective 2. Okay. Yeah, they're all letting <laughs> yeah. us be in there. Mm-hmm. And some years we've done things in um, less traditional locations, too. We've been outside and on like balconies. Like CISA Design, we're we're always grateful to CISA Design. You less that than show? yes, I did, yeah. and and the performance took place on the CISA Design balcony over the river. So you stood on and the, the bridge and you watched it. It's cool. <laughs> That's crazy. And then another year, you had a troop of yes, we had a troop of wandering comics. Shakespearean actors who well, I submitted, threw it out to my friends to give to their friends, and and sent it out to the internet world. Give me back a piece of work, no more than about 15 minutes, that has something to do with Shakespeare based on Shakespeare. And so collected um, a couple dozen works, but picked eight of them. And then every uh, uh, hour, uh, through the half hour actually, through the festival, I'm sorry, we had a, a little wagon that we pulled around with props and and costumes and everything piled up in this little motley crew that <laughs> walked around outside and every one of those performances on every half hour from six to ten were performed outside and we called them Shakespeare's shorts. Really the density of creative performing visual arts it's 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 impressive I think mm-hmm. and whether whether you're young or in school or or involved in it it's 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 a great attraction i think it's one of the one of the reasons that that people that that uh, the lansing area does get get rated as high as it does for attracting new business and attracting uh, young people to remain and and which is a, an important goal absolutely if anyone would care to have more information about the festival yeah they right. can go to www. Renegade Theater, and you spell theater with an R-E, festival, renegadetheaterfestival.org. And there is more information and more details about the festival. And um, We'll have complete programs at uh, the info tent. We'll be setting up uh, a little bit before 6 o'clock on, on Thursday. And we and it really is something that's, that's open to the community. It's a... a pretty much completely a volunteer effort. We're very fortunate to have some some founding sponsors who've 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 provided startup support for us when mm-hmm. we when we moved to Old Town and and I think that says a lot also for the kind of community that we have that that there are people that get behind it uh, and mm-hmm. that, that believe in and, and support what's going on. So that's we hope a lot of people come out for yeah, it this well, weekend. Yeah, I wish you success on your event, and thank you for taking the time to come in and talk today. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that was Katie Doyle and Melissa Kaplan talking about the Renegade Theater Festival, which is taking place in Lansing's Old Town Thursday through Saturday. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. 
There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. New Michigan State University undergrad research on the U.S. Supreme Court agenda setting reveals that paupers, which often include prisoners and uh, people of low socioeconomic status, are less likely to have their cases heard. Today, we are joined by Michigan State University senior Sydney Hawthorne and Ryan Black, who was her faculty advisor on the project. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so first, Sydney, how did you get into this or why did you decide that you wanted to search this topic or research this topic? Um, well, I first got involved working on uh, researching the Supreme Court um, through the Dean's Assistantship Program, um, which pairs you up with a faculty mentor from your major in social science. So um, that's how I met Professor Black. And um, he just gave me a topic that was interesting, and we researched Supreme Court um, decisions and voting pretty much all year and then put a presentation together. And you won an award for that presentation, correct, mm-hmm. recently? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what's your, what's your background with this topic? How, how did you get interested in it? Uh, I've been doing this for longer than I care to acknowledge. I've been doing this, <laughs> I've been toiling away on this topic, I think, probably since graduate school. Back um, my sec- summer after my first year of graduate school, I spent a summer in the Library of Congress in D.C. doing um, archival research. And so I took about uh, a quarter of a million digital pictures over the course of seven weeks uh, and have been working on agenda setting ever, ever since. And... Uh, so when Sydney came along, this was sort of seemed like a a good fit to work on with her. So you researched all year. What, what did you find? What were your results? Um, well, um, at the end, we found we we looked at informational cues that um, influence if a petition is going to be heard by the Supreme Court or not. Because each year there's thousands of petitions filed when really less than one percent are chosen. Um, so we focus on two um, negative cues, which were the pauper status and also unpublished opinion. Um, which is uh, the court doesn't publish an opinion in the lower court, so it doesn't take precedence. Um, so we found that with pauper status, it's 30% less likely to be granted review, and then with unpublished opinion, even greater at 50%. So what is the significance of this finding? What, is, what does this mean kind of for the average person who's, or I guess for someone trying to file a suit? Uh, well, it's important to see what influences, um, which cases will be heard uh, to sort of put a science or rhyme and reason with what gets chosen by the Supreme Court or not, because essentially the cases influence our everyday lives here in the United States. So is there any other research like this um, around, or is this kind of a project of first? Uh, I'd say, I mean, there's there's certainly some research that looks at agenda setting, because it's one of the, for the reasons that Sydney just articulated, it's a really important topic to sort of unpacking how the court works. This is one of the, the decision-making processes that actually operates almost in the utmost of secrecy, and we can't actually know how the justices voted uh, in the agenda setting stage until after one of them releases their papers to someplace like the Library of Congress. And so there's a, there's definitely a literature that studies agenda setting. Um, but this is, I think, one of the first projects to look at it in a sort of a systematic way, the impact of negative cues. So just exactly how much does a, a case get penalized if it's if it's pursued by someone who has lower um, economic status and if the case is disposed of in a, an unprecedented opinion. So I think in that way it's it's one of the first studies to look at it. So what should someone of pauper status do if if they want to get their, their case on the agenda? <laughs> A loaded so, question so, there. No, no, no. I mean, it's, so it's, uh, so the, one of the things that's, that's hard to sort of reconcile with the Supreme Court is it's the court that's at the top of the, of the judicial hierarchy in the United States. And so um, so someone loses their case and they'll, you know, a reporter will stick a microphone in their attorney's face and say, well, what are you going to do next? And, you know, the person will say, I'm going to take this case all the way to the Supreme Court. And mm-hmm. the Supreme Court at the end of the day really is concerned about not individual case outcomes, but about resolving conflicts among the circuit courts, about making the law uniform and standardized in the United States. And so for for someone to think that, you know, it's about getting their individual injustice um, corrected, that's that's really not what the court does. 
Uh, and so for a pauper then or for anyone filing a petition, really the, the thing that they need to be concerned about is making their case appeal outside of just that individual. And so making it so that it's a big and important question that affects you know thousands of potential litigants. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the, the sort of the best thing you can do to, to get your case uh, on the short list to, to be looked at. And, and so in that vein, I mean, finding a qualified attorney or an attorney with a lot of experience who has sort of uh, the ability to help frame the case or your, your, your petition in that particular way. Can you give an example of, of a case um, that, that has that larger appeal, um, at, which is why it, it, it got on the agenda for the Supreme Court? Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, the I mean, recently, the, the health care decisions um, are, are going to probably be a good example about that. And so what's happened there is you have multiple circuit courts who have ruled in divergent ways. And so what happens then is the law is going to be different in one part of the country. And so if you're in the 11th Circuit, uh, where they've upheld that the law is not constitutional, uh, that's going to be different than if you're in one of the circuits that's upheld that it is constitutional. The circuit specific one escapes my memory right now. But uh, And so what's happened then is you have different law in different parts of the country. And so that's something that beyond sort of the substantive importance of the topic um, is going to be something that, that probably is going to pique the court's attention at some point in the not-too-distant future. Can, can you uh, speak to um, what role politics of, of the people on the court plays in, into this idea of, of less cases being looked at um, for people of pauper status? Um, uh, the, the sample you looked at, mm-hmm. what, what year was that was from? It was from the 90s. The, most of the research you did, 94, 93? Uh, 1982, Jeremy, wasn't it? Uh, I believe 86 through. Mm-hmm. So it was when the court was um, more conservative. So from 86 to uh, 1993. And so in that period of time, the, the court is, is more conservative. And um, it actually, that sort of um, segues into something that I'm, I'm working on right now with another group of co-authors uh, that looks at um, the impact of ideology. And we actually mm-hmm. end up finding that um, that very much the cue is conditional. So if you had a very liberal justice like Thurgood Marshall mm-hmm. um, looking at a, a pauper petition, he's going to treat that petition differently than a very conservative justice like William Rehnquist. Uh, and so there is does appear sort of be this kind of, kind of conditional effect that if you are a pauper and it's a liberal justice who's looking at your petition, you're more likely to get help than if it's a conservative justice. So. Which – Makes sense. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's one of those. It's one of those. Hey, look what we found. It's it completely confirms our intuitions. Everything that we, yes, yeah, so everything the you know the, the, the small micro micro steps of uh, the scientific process, I guess. So for you, Sydney, what was this process like doing this kind of big uh, project? What was what did you learn from it? Um, it really brought what I learned in my political science classes to life, and all the research and methodology classes. Um, and also really sparked my interest more in um, constitutional research and law in that aspect. Um, and also reassured me that I am interested in a <laughs> career in law, so that was good before I get into law but, school Yeah, that's always that. nice so. to know that you, you want to do what you yeah. think you want to do. <laughs> uh-huh. so, just brought everything to life. So. And uh, future plans after the senior year? Um, I hope to go to law school. Um, I wouldn't mind getting more involved in researching, too, so... And uh, you're currently working on – are you working on a plethora of research projects? Anything I else am, that should be yeah. looking so for? Yeah, so this is only my second year at MSU, so I'm still on the uh, the fast-paced treadmill trying to get tenure and working on research projects. So, yeah. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining us today. Um, that was uh, – <coughs> sorry. <laughs> that was uh, professor, political science professor Ryan Black, uh, who was a faculty advisor, and Sydney Hawthorne talking about – Uh, influences that factor into the Supreme Court's decision to grant or deny um, review of a case. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? Oh, uh, three. Thanks. Hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh. Sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Third 
Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Today for the Michigan Storytelling segment, we welcome Adam Skydema, uh, author of the book Fresh Water Boys, uh, which is a collection of short stories set around the Great Lakes. Uh, welcome to Exposure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first, can you tell me a little bit about your background as a writer? Sure. Um... I didn't get, though I went to graduate school um, and studied creative writing at Western, um, I actually first got a degree in elementary education. It was something which maybe had some impact on sort of these stories I write that are a lot of times about, like, kids and about boys sort of coming of age and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I would, you know, write my own sort of stories like any kid any kid who wants to be a writer. And I would, I would even, you know, use action figures as a way of being, <laughs> you know, storytelling through action figures was a way of kind of creating a kind of fan fiction before I knew what the term was. So. What, what, what action figures were you? Oh, Star Wars and G.I. Joe would have been the thing <laughs> at the time, yeah. Classic stuff. Um, so the book that you've written, it's a collection of short stories, which are kind of weaved throughout with the use of the Great Lakes. Um, talk a little bit about why you decided to use that as a device in your work. Yeah, like the title suggests, um, Freshwater Boys, the, it, sort of the two common themes throughout throughout our the lakescapes of the Great Lakes, which I think so many of us who are, like myself, born and raised in Michigan, it, it's sometimes inescapable, especially this time of year. Um, and at the time, I was just spending a lot of time sort of hiking and, and running along a lot of the state parks, and it wasn't a real conscious decision. Um, I just think that for, for a lot of us, our landscapes, whether they're urban or rural or suburban, it starts to sort of seep into our skin, and then it sort of seeps into the writing. Um, but then the other uh, sort of theme throughout is this one of boys, the idea of sort of coming of age, boys and, and kids in general who are trying to figure out what it means to be adults, and then adults who realize that they still don't have it figured out either, <laughs> which now that I'm a parent, I understand too. Oh, would you mind reading us uh, a segment from your book and setting it, setting it up for us? Yeah, this is the, the very first... Um, story in the collection uh, so I'm just going to read from the opening it's, it centers for the most part about the, around this um, old hermit in the town who lives in, in this abandoned school bus um, and uh, these kids who found out that the man has just died and so they're very curious as to sort of what is his legacy and what is did he sort of leave behind in the bus so it's called New Era Michigan you start with the name and the rest follows youth and age and the scattering of ashes the town was named in the 1870s Daryl read the brief history on the menu's back cover at the trailside restaurant. He'd read it before. A local doctor-slash-sawmill owner had been fascinated by the dawning of that wondrous technological time, telephones, typewriters, elevators. Daryl was 12 years old, and sitting in the restaurant was a little young yet to notice that some people in town, some sipping coffee in the vinyl booths around him, still waited wearily for that dawning to end and the full daylight of a new era to begin. He was a little young yet to notice that only a handful were content with the time, with the dawn, and felt it was the moment when the light was near perfect. Daryl Pickle thought a lot about names because of his own. He checked the phone book, which covered everyone along Lake Michigan, from Ludington down to New Era and as far east as Walkerville and Walhalla, but his family was the only Pickle. He'd heard there were a few in Muskegon and a few more in Grand Rapids, but he'd never checked the phone books in those cities. And he thought a lot about the word hermit, which he'd always found funny, and the name Joseph Dornboss, which was the name of the hermit down the road. He'd once asked his dad what a hermit was and found out a hermit's a man without a woman or anyone else, which made Daryl think of a lot of people he knew, mostly divorced uncles on his mom's side. But they weren't hermits. They weren't like Joseph Dornboss, severed from the earth and sky as much as from family and friends. Daryl stayed close to the earth. For his birthday, in addition to a video game, a bright silver compass, a pair of flannel slippers, and some other assorted clothes, his parents had bought him a new dirt bike. His birthday was in June, and he washed the bike even every day, even now at the end of August. Part of what makes summer so perfect up here in the country, especially for kids whose parents both work full-time, is the freedom to get on a bike and banish for hours. Daryl took it everywhere, through town and out of it, and especially to the woods by his house. 
He searched for uncommon trees and animals. Sometimes he'd park the bike at the edge of the woods and wear his new flannel slippers into the moist rot of moss and dead leaves and fallen branches. The bottoms of the slippers were leather, and he pretended they were moccasins that helped him walk without sound. The woods made him feel invisible to the outside, but the moccasins made him feel invisible on the inside. He held the shiny compass in one hand, though he knew the woods by heart, and they were too small to ever get lost in. In the other hand, he held a field book that helped him identify different trees. The beaches were his favorite, their smooth silver skin and almost muscular trunks like the legs of elephants. A few of them were along what people called refrigerator trail because an old refrigerator had been dumped among the brown leaves. These beaches were larger than any other he'd seen in the area, their huge limbs diverging from the squat trunks close to the ground and curving upward on all sides so that they looked like monstrous hands or a jail cell. Daryl often brought a spiral notebook into the woods with him. He hunted without guns. He crept along the trails which were overgrown from underuse and tried to catch a glimpse of something rare. When he spotted an animal, he'd mark it down in the notebook, each sighting a vertical pencil mark next to its name. He didn't count squirrels or common birds like robins or even cardinals. There were too many. But he'd seen 75 white-tailed deer in his life, 15 at once, gathered at twilight in his neighbor's cherry orchard. He'd counted a few falcons and owls, wild turkeys, and several raccoons. Once he came across a white llama being led down the trail by a girl who lived with horses down the road, he didn't count the llama. It seemed like cheating since it wasn't native. He always hoped to find a bear, but knew there weren't any for at least a 100 miles this far south. His rarest find was two bald eagles that he'd seen at Claybanks Park on the lake, one circling above the trees, and one later perched high in the branches farther down shore. That night, he wondered if he'd just seen the same eagle twice, but he didn't erase the two markings in his notebook. It was easier to tell his family that he'd actually seen two, instead of clouding a good story with doubt. You're listening to Impact Exposure right now and talking to author of Freshwater Boys, Adam Skadema. Um so new air, I, I was looking through a little bit of book. I didn't have time to read the whole thing, no but uh, <laughs> it it comes up a lot in 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 your stories. Is is that is that a place that you're familiar? Is it a real place? <laughs> it is a real place. Yeah, it's a little ways north of Muskegon. It's such. It's one of those that you almost you know if. I, I teach creative writing, and um, you know, if, I, if a student said, "I'm going to come up, invent a town, and it's going to be called New Era," I'd say, I, I think that's a little too, a uh, little too clever by half. And yet, when you do come across these real places like that, you have to use them. And yeah, um, my family's always had this uh, little cottage uh, in, in the town of New Era, which is a little ways north of Muskegon. Yeah. Well, I think we've got time to hear uh, one more quick uh, excerpt from your book, if you want to read one for us. Sure. This is the really a really short one from the um, the title story, Freshwater Boys. The story centers around a, a real tragedy of a, of a child drowning, but this is just sort of these opening moments um, which sort of reflect this, this summertime. Casey DeHaan swam with his eyes open underwater. He saw through the blue of the backyard pool, the silt-filled brown of Boulder Bluff Pond, and the chilled green of Lake Michigan waves. His friends Jake and Sam would bring over buckets of golf balls that they'd collected along the netted outer edges of the driving range. They'd toss them into the pool and three of them would dive into the bottom of the deep end, frantically gathering the balls in their arms while their lungs caught fire. They were 12 years old. Their shoulders were still slender, and their legs couldn't push them through the water with great strength. But they'd all been swimmers from birth. Casey and Jake in neighborhood pools, and Sam in the lakes that his father sailed with his 40-foot Chris Craft. None of them feared water. They warred over their skin like cool summer bedsheets. Casey liked to float on his back, staring up and squinting so that there was nothing in his peripheral vision. All he would see was blue sky, and when he stared at it long enough, it became another lake to him. Then he would close his eyes and smile at the rising, sinking, rising cadence of the waves and the blind thrill in his stomach that came from letting himself be taken where the waves wished. The sky was calm and the waves went almost invisible during the first Sunday in August, making Lake Michigan seem more like the lake it really was and not the ocean that those with boats and beachfront cottages liked to believe. Instead of climbing and curling, the waves moved as tender ridges toward the shore, and when they met the shore, they merely slipped underground. There were no fireworks, no white, foaming rush. It was perfect for swimming, even a half-mile offshore, where Gregory Dunn, Sam's father, had anchored the Chris Craft. Gregory was a thoracic surgeon in Grand Rapids who kept his boat docked at the Singapore Yacht Club in Saugatuck. Casey and Jake called him Dr. D because it sounded tough, and it was funny, because Gregory Dunn was bald with glasses and was an inch or two shorter than Mrs. Dunn. Once a month, the Dunns invited Sam's friends along to trace the coast between Saugatuck and Holland. They did this especially for Casey, whose parents had been divorced for over a year. 
Parts of the coast were absent of homes and people. Under the sun, Casey imagined it as an idyllic Pacific island. The trees cast shadows that looked like oases in the warm sand. But when the skies were overcast, the shore was a borderland of gray, and the imagined Pacific island was simply deserted. It was easy for Casey to play these mind tricks on himself. All it took was clouds, this detachment from land, and enough water. Real quick before I let you go, where can uh, people go to find more information about sure. you and your work? You can find out more at my website, which is freshwaterboys.com, all one word. All right. That was Adam Skydema, author of the book Freshwater Boys. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Exposure. me. And thank you for listening to Exposure tonight. Go forth and prosper. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.